Good morning, and welcome to episode 180 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from www.baseballperspectus.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how are you? Great. Great. Yes. Great that you're great. Uh, you were up all night writing, I assume. Mm-hmm. We're coming <laughs> to you from the morning time on Friday, um, which means that by now we know that Zach Granke has a, I believe, broken collarbone and that Matt Kemp believes that the Padres are a bitch. I've been there. I've had a broken collarbone. Wasn't fun. I've had, yeah. I've had three. I've had three? Three, three broken collarbones. Wow. Uh, all as a child. Right. Yeah, mine was a, a horrendous seesaw accident. What were, <laughs> what were yours? Uh, one was wrestling, huh. one was out of a high chair, and one was <laughs> off a uh, jungle gym. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Is collar collarbone seems like a, a child's injury more than anything else? Is Zach Granke looks like a child? <laughs> yes. Is it possible that he is a Although child? I was impressed that uh, that the the fracture happened, I guess, in the initial charge of the mound, and then they he showed kept... him kind of standing around after with like just a completely impassive look on his face. Maybe yeah. just because he is Zach Granke and and isn't quite like the rest of us sometimes. Um, but he didn't really give any sign that he had just broken a bone. Yeah, I also was shocked by that. That was pretty impressive. I cried. I wonder, you cried when you broke yours? I was five or six, but yes, Can you, I cried. What, what, did you f- fall off the seesaw naturally, or did somebody prank you? Uh, no, it was, it was my grandma was like, <laughs> <laughs> she just pushed me off. No, uh, I don't know. I was, there was a miscommunication. One of us was was getting on the seesaw or getting off the seesaw, and we we didn't coordinate, uh, and there was a high price paid by me. Uh-huh. Um, well, we're going to talk briefly in a little bit more detail about this fight that happened last night, and you're going to talk about uh, something I wrote about catcher framing. Surprise! Surprise! All right, so the. Um, a lot of the narrative on this fight developed while we were sleeping, but basically oh, it seems while like you were sleeping. while I was sleeping. Uh, so you actually might know more about this. Uh, but basically it seems like people think that uh, Carlos Quentin is an idiot mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, obviously Carlos Quentin gets hit by more pitches than anybody in the universe mm-hmm. and uh, that it's unlikely that Granky would have thrown at him to put the tying run on base. Uh, and that he's a big dumb moron, and that he should be suspended for a very long time because um, Granky is hurt. Mm-hmm. And I have a few issues with a few of the pieces of logic involved there. Um, but you know, obviously, I don't really know as well as those guys know. But what do you what do you make of the bad guys and the good guys here? Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to understand. I, I assume there's more to it than I know from just watching on TV. Uh, I mean, Quentin says that there is a history between the two of them, and and yes, Granky has hit him twice before, but everyone has hit Carlos Quentin twice before. Uh, Eric Bedard has hit Carlos Quentin three times in nine plate appearances, so Eric Bedard must really, really hate Carlos Quentin. Um so, I don't know. Uh, he said something about what Granky said to him that made him decide to charge the mound, but uh, it, it seems like he just said stop, um, which I guess Wait, could be kind of annoying. It, he said stop at what point? 
I think uh, when Quentin kind of initially reacted, supposedly Granky said yeah. stop, and then uh-huh. and then so Quentin, that's what that word is, yeah. I think I don't know. At least I read and kind of looked like that, um, which I don't know. I guess could be kind of annoying, but probably not a good reason to charge the man. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he. He obviously gets hit all the time and does not charge the mound every time. So something about this seems different to him. I don't know whether it was that he got hit earlier in the week and was still residually annoyed about that, or, or I don't know, he, he seems to believe that it was intentional or that the previous times were intentional. Granky denies that, and Granky is usually a guy who tells the truth about things that players don't tell the truth about typically. Um, I mean, it would not be smart to admit that he did it intentionally. Uh, but if anyone were going to do that, and occasionally someone does, I would think it would be Granky. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm i not ready to vilify him, I guess, but I don't particularly understand the thought process behind charging the mound. I mean, ever, really, but particularly in this case. Yeah, I basically trust Quentin's instinct uh, in this, uh, and I basically trust that he he has some idea of when he's been uh, kind of aggressively wronged. Um, I'm watching, I've been kind of flipping uh, frame by frame uh, across Granky's face just before he charges, and trying to sort of determine exactly how aggressive Granky's face looks. But, I mean, it seems clear that Quentin probably wouldn't have charged if Granky had, you know, simply walked walked away or whatever you know i mean granky fit turns and faces quentin and says something in a emphatic voice and uh i mean i'm not saying that that's exactly the same as like i don't know yelling a slur or something like that i mean i'm not saying that granky deserves a broken collarbone for it but um there's a it seems like there's a there's some element of fighting words going on here mm-hmm. and Batters charge pitchers. Pitchers don't charge batters. And the pitcher equivalent of charging a batter <laughs> is... It would be interesting. But the pitcher equivalent is to throw a pitch and then aggressively face the guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially inviting the guy to charge. And I'm, I'm not sure that Granky did that exactly, but I am I think he <clears> maybe... Uh, yeah. he, came, he, came, he came close enough to doing that. Between throwing a pitch up and in, uh, which he either intended to hit Quentin or didn't, and turning and facing Quentin and saying something at him, which he either intended to be fighting words or he didn't, there's a lot of ambiguity there, and I sort of appreciate Quentin's position. Now, obviously, so here's the thing, though. I mean, I, I'm basically a total pacifist when it comes to sports and most things in life, and so, uh, I mean, I think it's ridiculous that Quentin would go and fight an adult human being in front of lots of other people. It seems bizarre and weird, and it's one of my least favorite things about baseball, but... There is an there is an acceptance of this general idea in baseball that it's okay to go fight on a mound as long as you're willing to get suspended for a few games. And once you allow that, it seems like a lot of the nuance that we're negotiating over is sort of undefined and it's hard to judge the guy over. I mean, we allow people to fight. And so Carlos Quentin going and fighting doesn't seem any... Uh, more wrong here than it does in the dozens of other brawls that we'll see this year, next year, and the year after. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it's it's not like Granky's collarbone broke because because Quentin, I don't know, pulled out a like a hammer and hit him with it. He kind of did what 
what a hitter typically does when he charges the mound and for whatever reason it resulted in a broken bone this particular time um i mean maybe there was more intent to injure in this case than there is in the typical charge of the mound i don't know uh but but yeah i mean if you it seems like you should kind of punish a a mound charge the same kind of regardless of whether anyone gets hurt as a result of it unless yes. there's some sort of egregious action that results in that injury um i don't know whether so does does Granky's kind of aggressive uh reaction after the pitch make you make you feel like it's more likely that it was intentional at all or do you just think it was just an inflammatory reaction either way but but, yeah, I'm not sure because you can really make a case for either one. If he yeah. was throwing up and in to try to hit Quentin, then he would turn and say something to him to reinforce his point. If he wasn't, then he's turning and saying something about how Quentin is overreacting and sit down, you idiot. You right. know, I mean, you can you can make the case for either one of those. So I wouldn't say that I could presume to know. Yeah, he said something after the game about how he thinks uh, Quentin might be doing this just sort of as an intimidation tactic. Uh, and to make it, which I th- yeah, I thought about that last night, but that doesn't make sense because Quentin wants to get hit. Yeah, I guess that's true. Well, uh, well, Grinky said uh, that maybe he wants people to pitch him away and not pitch him inside. I don't know if uh, he struggles with inside pitches particularly. Obviously, the the hitting, the getting hit by pitches helps him as long as it doesn't hurt him. Uh, I mean, physically. Um, so. I don't know. Maybe it would be interesting to see how he does on inside pitches and whether he'd have a lot of incentive to get people to to pitch to him outside. But I guess that's a, a possible motivation. And, and if Granky thought that that was what Quentin was doing, then it's understandable that he would react by kind of not not being cowed by the intimidation attempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wrote about Quentin's hit by pitches yes. maybe a year and a half ago, and. Uh, found, if I recall correctly, that there is a situational bias toward him getting hit in some counts where it's more pitcher-friendly counts, mm-hmm. which suggests to me that he a lot of those hit-by-pitches are strategic, mm-hmm. um, that he wants to get on base. And so, uh, but the idea that that would be, that, that, that getting hit-by-pitch would be a way of getting pitchers to pitch him outside uh, and that intimidating pitchers would also be a way of getting pitchers to pitch them outside is actually interesting. There's a very interesting topic there. Um, it could potentially uh, change the outcome of the NL West race. Who knows? Granky is out for a while, and presumably Matt Kemp will be suspended for a while. Yeah, I wonder how long Kemp will get suspended. Because Kemp, the, the, if Kemp went, I, I, I'm, I might have the details wrong, but he kind of went after... Um, Quentin after the game as well, like in the parking lot, right? Uh, I don't know. I didn't read about that. I think he did, and I think he went yelling names at him and such. Mm-hmm. And if if that's true, that seems to me to be uh, a, uh, a clear breach of the mm-hmm. uh, of the fighting limitations. That it's essentially it's Solaire without the bat, mm-hmm. right? It's it's taking the fight after the fight is over so uh the best part of any brawl is always the bullpens emptying and the bullpen emptying in this brawl was was fantastic it was like it was so delayed because it was like the initial scrum kind of happened and i guess the the, i don't think the bullpens emptied initially i guess they 
they figured it was going to blow over, and then it kind of started up again, and then all the relievers trotted in, but they, I guess the, the bullpens are pretty close together, so they kind of trotted in side by side peacefully to get to the brawl, at which point they would then start, each other. <laughs> start fighting. I don't know. I always really enjoy the bullpen emptying because they never, ever get there uh, really before the, the hostilities are, are over. They always get there after it's all over, and then they just kind of stand around awkwardly showing their support. Ben, you're not a big guy, and you don't seem like a fighter. If you somehow figured out a way to get onto a major league team, uh, like as a, as, a, as a catcher who could really frame or something like that, and there was a fight like this, and it, let's say it was like a crazy fight where there were lots of punches being thrown, etc. What would you do? Would you go out? Would you run out? Uh, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess I would run out because you can't not run out because um, you have to kind of be a good teammate and all that. Uh, but I don't know. I guess if I were a major leaguer, I would just have a different personality than the one I do. I, I guess it's kind of inconceivable that, that I could get to the major leagues because I I don't have a, a very fiery competitive personality that probably serves you well as you attempt to become a major leaguer. So maybe everyone who gets to that point kind of has that personality. Um, I don't know what I would do. I guess I would go out there and mill about, maybe maybe hold someone back. All right, uh, so let's go for it. What's the next topic? Uh, so I wrote about framing in my continuing effort to be typecast as the guy who writes about framing. Uh, I started a series this week at BP every Friday where I look back at some good and bad catcher frames from the previous week and talk about some framing stuff. Uh, you can read it at BP. It's free because it uses a lot of pitch effects stuff, and we are supposed to make pitch effects stuff free because pitch effects is free. Uh, so this week, in addition to kind of looking at the good and bad frames, I looked at um, kind of the, the areas of the strike zone that certain catchers are good at framing in. Because, I don't know, I, I, I guess I just sort of used to assume that someone who was good at framing was good at framing everywhere and if you could receive a pitch well on the outside corner then you could receive a pitch well low or high uh, and that that skill would just sort of translate um, and with some guys it does uh, like Jose Molina can just frame a pitch anywhere but there are other guys who just have really really extreme I guess you could say framing splits uh, between how good they are at receiving a pitch in one area and how good they are at receiving a pitch in another. So someone like uh, Joe Maurer is really, really good at receiving high strikes. Uh, and he, he gets a lot of high strikes called strikes or, or high pitches called strikes. Uh, but he's bad at low pitches, like significantly below average. Uh, and then Jonathan Lucroy or Lucroy is kind of the opposite. He is really, really, really good at low pitches, just way above average called strike rate on those, but below average on high pitches. Uh, and it was interesting because I looked at the the top five guys in, in called high strike rate, and they were all tall people. Uh, Joe Maurer was 6'5", Tyler Flowers, Saltalamakia, and Kratz are all 6'4". And then Molina was on there just because he's Molina, and he's 6'2". 
Uh, and so I thought maybe there was some sort of relationship there. So, and and Lucroix, Lucroix, do you know which one it is? I would have always guessed Lucroix. Yeah, I was that's what I always thought too. But then I heard someone say Lucroix. Now I doubt myself. Um, and he's not a, a particularly big guy, and he's good at at low strike stuff. So. I looked at the the correlation between height and how good a guy is at framing high in the strike zone and low in the strike zone, and it turns out that there is one. Uh, tall catchers tend to be better at framing high pitches. It's a, a moderate correlation of 0.35, so it's not always the case that a, a good catcher is good at high pitches, but it is often the case, or there's often a, a tendency towards that. And it doesn't extend quite so much in the other direction with with low, uh, short catchers being good at low pitches. That correlation is only negative 0.12, which is probably something, but is is weak. Uh, so tall catchers have a, a bigger advantage on high pitches than than short catchers do on low pitches. But it's and and that's probably I would think because uh, it, it's easier to sort of drop the glove and get a, a low strike than it is to bring bring a glove up and get a high strike. And if you're tall, then your your target is already higher, so you don't have to bring it up as much, and it doesn't distract the umpire as much. But it's interesting to me that there is that relationship, and I wonder whether there is a way for teams or certain teams to exploit it somehow. Uh, the split with Maurer is so drastic that I was thinking that since he does kind of split time between catcher and first base and DH, you could arrange his starts so that he tends to catch people who throw up in the zone more often. So if someone who throws up in the zone is starting, then maybe you make that one of the, the days that he is catching. If someone who works down in the zone is starting, then maybe that you make that one of his rest days or one of the days that he plays first or, or DH. And I wonder whether there would be some advantage to kind of considering that when you are, I don't know if you're if you're just kind of choosing between uh, catch and throw guys, backup guys who are more or less the same and decent receivers. If one of them is tall and one of them is short, maybe you could kind of pair them with your starting catcher in such a way that you always have a big guy with with guys who work up in the zone and, and a small guy with guys who work down in the zone. So I thought it was yeah, interesting. If you have a backup catcher who you're going to basically try to link to one pitcher as much as possible, uh, like the Giants do with Hector Sanchez, for mm -hmm. instance, then then you you would take that into account. Um, two, two, although I guess uh, a lot of times you just let the backup catcher catch the day game after a night game, uh, in which case it would be uh, this information would probably be a luxury that you wouldn't really get to act too much on. But just out of curiosity, if you had, let's say you had a backup catcher who was left-handed and uh, a starting catcher who, uh, you know, who hit left-handed and a starting catcher who hit right-handed, and your plan is normally to get the backup catcher, you know, one start a week, uh, roughly, and to always have him batting against a right-handed pitcher, so you at least get the platoon advantage. Would you guess that the catcher framing advantage of a situation like this, where one catcher is significantly better on, you know, high pitches, and you have a pitcher who works high in the zone, that sort of situation that you just described, would be more valuable than the 
platoon advantage on the offensive side or less less valuable? Yeah, I think it would be more valuable. I mean, it depends on on the size of that split, but if it were a, a Maurer or Lucroy type split, then yeah, I definitely think so. That would be, I think, worth more than than whatever advantage you get from some bad hitter who has the platoon advantage. Um, yeah, I would I would definitely give more weight to the framing if it were a big difference between them. So it'd be interesting. For, you mentioned that Maurer has a big split between high and low, mm. but I would like to see visually somehow uh, how much variance there is for all catchers mm. between each of these type of zones. Because like Molina, you, you noted, is extremely consistent in all of them, and Domit, I assume, is bad in all of them. It'd be interesting to see if Maurer is the freak here or if, each hitter really does if each catcher really does have one usually one skill and but not all three skills Mm -hmm. sort of sort of a thing yep maybe i will look into it a little more in one of my many more articles about this topic yeah sounds good all right so uh that's the end of the week we'll be back on monday with episode 181 enjoy your baseball